My producer told me that if you smile while you're speaking, no matter what you say, it adds a bounce to it for the NPR listener who just then just has to listen a little bit more because they're excited about what you're talking. Even if you're talking about children being run over by a steamroller and they're being rolled to pieces. Okay. That was just oh my so God. surreal. Yeah. So I had to record, and now you can tell I'm not smiling anymore. Yeah. I had to record with a giant smile. Wow. Time. So many, so many, so many damn books. Welcome to So Many Damn Books. I'm Christopher. I'm Drew. And today we have Rosecrans Baldwin in the damn library with us. Thanks for joining us, Rosecrans. I am Rosecrans. very damn happy to be joining you today. Yeah. Um, we're so glad to have you. Um, you are a writer for... An, uh, a bunch of different online magazines and 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 in print magazines as well. You've written for GQ, places like um, places like that, as well as you wrote the novel uh, "You Lost Me There" and the memoir "Paris, I Love You, But You're Bringing Me Down." And you are the, most recently the author of "The Last Kid Left," coming out now. It's out now. It from is from Mick D, which is a a new imprint. Yeah, it's the new imprint from Ferris, Strauss, and Drew uh, by Sean McDonald, yeah. who was my editor for the previous two books, and then he got his new imprint, and so, yes. Nice. nice. Here we are with McD. Yeah. Um, or MCD, which is a little bit like LCD sound system. I'm not sure if Sean has settled on which is the which proper which pronunciation. One? Yeah. yeah. Hmm. I like the MCD because of the LCD. It does have that, like, it's, it's, more, cool. it's more hip. Let me tell you about this um, this drink that I made. For the for for you, uh, inspired by Last Kid Left. This is the California Sunrise that we're drinking. Um, it's tequila, orange, fresh squeezed orange and lemon juice. It's really important that you fresh squeeze your juices. <laughs> I think it's pretty safe to assume if Christopher's made a cocktail, it's probably fresh squeezed juice. Am I allowed to mention though, and I probably am just interrupting because I've had two of them so far, <laughs> and both are delicious, that there is also sort of a homemade syrup in here, Yeah. right? Yeah. That's, Which had what in it? So I had a, um, it's a hibiscus and pomegranate syrup that I made. Yeah. So the hibiscus um, was, that, that actually was, that came created and I didn't have enough of it. So I made a pomegranate syrup to sort of... Um, be able to make some more drinks for well, us. Well, it was scrumptious. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's a relatively hot day in New York City. Yeah. Yes. And this kind of hits the spot. And you reached out to me ahead of time, so asking if I had any liquor suggestions, and I so, threw out tequila. And what's the name of the cocktail? It's the California Sunrise because these, uh, this book, your your novel, Last Kid Left, uh, there's a there's a star-crossed couple that believes they can escape to California. And everything will be happy there. <laughs> <laughs> and as someone who grew up, you in California, you know that's a lie. Yeah, you. <laughs> it's, uh, California does make it a little easier to be happier than some other places. I live in Los Angeles. My wife and I have lived there for three years, and we still talk about the weather to people. Yeah, it's impossible <laughs> not. Well, everybody, everyone loves to talk about the weather in Los yeah. Angeles. Yeah, there's a joyful naivete about moving to Los Angeles. You sort of you don't get dumber. You just get a little bit more dazed. You know? <laughs> so oh. Forever, people thought that all the potheads lived in Southern California, and now that we're all potheads, yeah. right? As the yeah. legalization sweeps, you know, the world, it's more that we just have so much sunshine that <laughs> our, just we're a little your brain toasted. in a different way. <laughs> and I don't—I'm not a pot smoker. I'm just a little bit toasted all the time. <laughs> 
I like talking about the weather when it rains. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I couldn't resist. <laughs> let's uh, let's talk about what we bought now. Yeah. You talk for a while. Um, a friend of mine is uh, doing some freelance publicity work for a new indie publishing house, 713 Books. Okay. Uh, and she sent me their first two books, Planet Grimm and Glam Shack. She, uh, she runs um, the Next Best Book Club on Goodreads. Mm. And she was like, I don't know. Give them a shot. See what you think. And it's, always just, it's fun to be in a place where people are like, hey... I know enough about your taste. I'm going to take a shot. That's cool. That's really uh, awesome. So I'm I'm excited to dip into them this summer. And I'm going to do the thing of going in completely blind. I'm not going to read any of the press stuff. I'm not going to look at them on Goodreads. I'm just like going to pick one up at some point. I love that. Yeah. It's just sort of a passion read. Yeah. You know, just go for it. Throw yeah. yourself into it. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Yeah. Um, do you want to go? I'd, ha- be, I'd be happy to go. I'm going to... I think a lot of people who may know my name before having been introduced by you may know me because of the morning news so this oh. is this online zine that andrew womack and i and then a lot Co-founded. of people have worked on yeah. since about 1999 and in the uh celebration of online not online but uh indie publications i'm gonna go with a little magazine that uh they were supposed to send me a copy because i have a subscription it didn't arrive in the mail because i recently changed my address so i went out and bought it it's called racket magazine oh. uh cool. it is this cool new uh indie sort of beautiful print object that's all about tennis with nothing to do with tennis as a preppy you know fancy country club sport everything that is other than that that has to do with tennis is in this magazine so there are short stories there's beautiful art there's stories about how french players always get crippled after like a semi-final round and can't win anything there's you know huge <laughs> tributes to serena williams it's just wow. this awesome thing that celebrates a sport that i love and leaves out all the stuff i hate about it which is like <laughs> when i was my mom enrolling me in sixth grade into a tennis camp one summer and it's like super starchy and these annoying jockey guys that are beating the shit out of me and i'm like let me go skateboard and like now that i've come back to it and found it as an adult it's like oh what a cool world so mm-hmm. racket magazine i'm racket. digging yeah cool. i remember they did a they started on a kickstarter i yes. believe yeah nice yeah. christopher yeah i am um, i got sent the the hot one by carolyn mernick oh what's that it's got one of those really cool subtitles where it's just a memoir of friendship sex and murder hell yeah um that is a hell of a subtitle yeah and it's uh i guess i guess it all take place in one night uh uh, no but it it should but it is all set in los angeles and hollywood and it's gonna be you know yeah murder and uh and i'm very and it's her life carolyn mernick she is the online editor of new york magazine oh okay Um, oh so i'm really excited about this 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 lurid book i mean it's really the hot one it's um it's like a black and white cover but the hot one is in like infrared wow. yeah like burning through the pages i think the only way this book could get better as a pitch is if it all takes place in one hour in an in and out bathroom <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the Last Kid Left. Yeah, The yeah. Last Kid Left. Let's talk about your awesome novel. Um, right. And do you want to give us 
or their listeners, since we read it, but li- some of the listeners might not have. Do you want to talk about what I'd it's love about? to talk about it? Uh, let me give you a preface from where the book came from, and then I'll give you a quick description of the book. Yeah, cool. and I'll keep it short. Uh, seven years ago, I was in a small New England town uh, reporting a magazine story. I had an interview with a local historian and went an hour it was awful it wasn't good for him it wasn't good for me we walked away not liking each other <laughs> but as we did he said literally as an aside a toss up comment hey by the way did you know about the big scandal in our town and this is you know it, come on like really teeing me up and i was like no what's the big scandal he said oh i can't talk about it <laughs> like we went from a bad interview to a bad tease you know like the hookup is not going to go well uh so he said that something had happened in the 30s i could look it up for myself there were still people whose families had been involved in what happened he would not want to bring up their names however he gave me one pointer look at life magazine from this year see if you can find the issue that will tell the story so a couple weeks later inspiration from heaven arrives via ups from ebay and there is the life magazine uh and in the center of it is a feature two pages 22 photographs uh late 30s a 19 year old kid from uh northern new england winds up in new jersey at the beach with two corpses in the back of his car uh the police bring him in he immediately confesses to a double homicide. He says that in his small town, he had gone over to the home of the local doctor and his wife. It was a home invasion gone wrong. He meant to burgle them. Bad things happened. Threw the bodies in his car, drove around New England for a couple days in a drunken fog, trying to figure out where to ditch the corpses and parked in this little seaside town. So he has schlepped back home. Suddenly we're going to put him on trial. And then everything starts to spiral out a little bit more because the kid's confession doesn't make sense. And more and more people around town are pulled into the story, uh, particularly his underage, at the time she was 17, year old girlfriend. And the girlfriend uh, happens to be the daughter of the county sheriff's deputy. So this is explained in the captions of 22 photos in a two-page spread in Life magazine. And I, after that, honestly could not look away from it. I mean, this is seven years ago, but I remember that sense of discovery being like, what am I staring at? Um, Now, at the time, I knew I wanted to write about it. I didn't know what I wanted to write about it. But I thought, here's something that could be fiction. And so what I decided as a game, as much as anything, is that I wouldn't learn anything else about the story beyond those 22 pictures. That I was not interested in doing a true crime piece or finding out what actually happened. It was sort of like, here's the inspiration. Use this. Construct the rest. Hmm. So I tried writing it as a historical novel. I've never written a historical novel. It went like crap. I mean, I couldn't do anything that felt unique or fun or whatever. Um, and after months of that, something, my obsession with those pages had started to shift because 22 photos, and I'm drawing a box for the listeners. I'm drawing a box for these guys to try to outline this two-page spread. Uh, a quarter of the real estate, so one half of those two pages, is a sidebar about the girlfriend. And it's these photographs of her in which the press, because the press latched onto this case. It was a dry summer in the media. Stalin was getting up to like minor shenanigans, not like bad shenanigans. (laughs) Sure, sure, sure. Uh, And the press at the time flew in from New York, from San Francisco, from Miami, from London, and decided that the girl was a sex object. So Hmm. it's unclear how this happened because I only have my imagination to put it together. But the pictures are of her in a bathing suit on a lawn 
I mean, this is there's no reason for her to be in a bathing suit unless she's out caught suntanning. There's another one where she's holding up a newspaper with a lurid headline, and I would tell you what the headline is, but it would give away part of the plot. Uh, there's another one of her on a date. Which makes no sense because her boyfriend, who has just <laughs> confessed to murders and his confession is falling apart, is being held in jail right now. The thing is, the girl is not once interviewed. There is no sense of what she thinks, what she feels beyond what's captured in her face in these photographs. One of the biggest photos is of her almost as a silent film star. And so I got really taken with that. That's and that, awesome. Yeah. That led me to this idea that this isn't a story locked in the 30s. This is Greek drama. This is 2017. This is Tumblr. This is, you know, a Terrence Malick movie. This is a piece of fiction that I read when I was a teenager about a crazy love story that matched the emotions that I had as a teenager. You know, and also as a teenager when no one gives you any credit for having emotions. Yeah. Everyone's just like, oh, you're a teenager. You're just hormones <laughs> looking to jerk off in a truck. And I'm like, I don't own a truck. <laughs> But the point is, once I once it clicked for me that this could be a story set now, everything opened up. And granted, it took me six years to like get it all to open up, but that is uh, the story. So now, The Last Kid Left is taking the inspiration of that story, setting it now, and then I just went everywhere I could with it. Yeah. And that's fantastic as far as a summary of this book. Yeah. And it's also very true. You really did go everywhere with it. Patreon listeners will know I often read in bars. And I, when I was reading this book in bars, people would, you know, what's your book about? Yeah. And I, w- I, s- I would say um, it's sort of uh, In Cold Blood on HBO right now <laughs> 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 kind of book is was my sort of like ex- ex- explanation of it. I mean, In Cold Blood seems like very connected to this. Is that something yeah. you would consider an inspiration? Certainly. I mean, I love that book. I discovered that book when I was uh, 19. I think my first year in college, I read that book in a class. And that was actually how I got exposed to all of Truman Capote's work. And I think something like In Cold Blood, if I could sort of smash that together with something like Ethan Frome, where Mm. you have that sense of sort of a... A, it's you know the great thing about Edith Wharton is that her prose is so propulsive and the storytelling is so tight and you get wrapped up in it. Um, other people have compared this book to Scarlet Letter uh, in terms of like where an inspiration might come from. And I did in an interview with my publicity people, I talked about how much I admire that book. And that's certainly true. But I don't. That book is very difficult to read. It is many times that it is just hard to like stay with it versus the Edith Wharton books, you know, and Ethan Frome is just coming to mind, but there's one I'm forgetting right now that's set in New York society uh, about this young woman who sort of gets tr- this big downward spiral. In any case, Ethan Frome, here you have small town New England, which is something that I know, particularly like the side to New England that people don't see when you live in a small New England town long enough. And currently people can, dealing with the heroin epidemic, people yeah. dealing with copper stripping and, you know, industry disappearing and agricultural failing and all the rust belt towns through Vermont, New Hampshire, Maine that you once had textiles supporting them uh, and now just have tattoo parlors and, you know, antique shops. I wanted to see that world, you know, in a novel because I knew that and I was like, I want to see that represented more. Um but yeah, so certainly in, tr- in Cold Blood where you've got just that very gripping story where it's about the people as much as about the crimes. And I, and I think that um, the, the main kid, the kid character, who the one who uh, confesses to the crime yeah, at the Nick. beginning, Nick, is, right. it has sort of like a, there's an analog or something to, to, the, um, to the younger kid. I'm forgetting their names in, in Cold Blood. Oh, uh, I the, don't remember The younger either. of the two guys yeah. um, who's like 
constantly just chewing aspirin the whole time <laughs> in, his, in his prison. Um, that's, I don't know, like I, I was thinking about them a lot. I thought they were sort of echoes. Yeah, I, it's cool to hear you talk about the small town thing because, and it, it is partially just what's happening in the world as I was reading this book, but I, especially at the very beginning of this book, really thought of Twin Peaks mm. and the way that that show hops around, and it's certainly doing it a lot now in the, the new return revival thing, but even the original episodes, they hop from character to character and build this sort of hodgepodge sense of a town like you get to see the sheriff and you get to see the high schoolers and you get to see the outsider Mm -hmm. um and i I was so impressed with the way that you juggled all of them Mm. uh thank you because it there are so many of them and it happens so fast i'm wondering where that structure came from like was that did you start with the structure or did the structure come to you the structure I largely began with in terms of I wanted multiple perspectives because I enjoy reading that. You know, what I knew when I set out with this book is I wasn't going to write anything that I didn't want to read. Like this was really a book for me. Uh, and what I wanted to sort of do artistically was to create a book. I love books that change perspective as long as I don't, that challenge me mm-hmm. to stay up with it, but not in a way that I feel like the author is an asshole sort of being like, I'm not interested in you reading my book. This mm-hmm. was all done for me. Yeah. You know, like that's, I mean, fuck that. But like, I did want people to gain, uh, all these perspectives to tell one story and because the story for me at the heart of it is these two teenagers sort of trapped as all this stuff escalates around them and the adults in their lives have all their defenses stripped away. For me, the structure of how do I set about doing that needed to have multiple people that you were invested in as a reader. Um, And ideally you could sort of get into each of their points of view, their psychology, and have an experience with each of them, but that might have led to this sort of collective sense of, is this person going to be transformed or is this person going to stay trapped, right? Yeah. Is there a way out or are you going to get you know, stuck here? Because I think for me, that's been a lot of moments in my life where I don't really, am I going to be stuck for a while in some place or can I find a way out of it? Did you find it easier to write any character than others? Like there was there a voice that you're like, yeah, this is... I can write this. <laughs> you know, what's funny is I was most scared of writing a teenage boy. That was the one which is probably the, should have been the easiest for me. I mean, because I think, obviously, as a dude, I was a teenage <laughs> boy. And frankly, as an adult, I am a teenage boy. <laughs> so that should have been easiest. I don't know what it is that it says about me or how I was raised uh, or, you know, I'm very close with my mother or whatever. Let's put aside Freud for a second. But I have a quick time writing into female characters Mm -hmm. and i have a quick time writing into male sort of adult characters but a young man for me perhaps was almost too close to home Mm -hmm. and so i worked on nick a lot and it wasn't until i started to let go with nick that i decided that i wasn't going to be so precious about trying to nail it and like really go back to shit that i was ashamed of Mm -hmm. you know when i was 16 19 and i tried to I would close my eyes. This is going to sound silly for a second, but I would sit at my desk, close my eyes and force myself with my eyes closed to write down the things that I am most embarrassed by from those periods, because that for whatever reason lingers for so long and stands mm-hmm. out. And those, the names of those girls, you know, like just sort of are there yeah. haunting me. And I'll, I'm sure I will remember their names to my death, but that is something I didn't want to write about that. And yet, once I started telling myself to do it, Nick started to come out. And then Nick started like, oh, 
shit, here's my way in. That's that's really interesting. Nick Nick felt um, remote to me, and I think that was partially because he's he's such a he's really violent. He's a violent yeah. character, and um, his confession and and all of that, notwithstanding, and, and of the plot, but he he has a lot of violence, and it seemed like he that like that that um motivation is mysterious or mm. that seemed like mysterious throughout the book like the the um the instinct towards violence is something that seemed like completely unthinkable mm. um is i mean th- that's just a comment that's not a question <laughs> at all <laughs> I, th- I think for what what connects for me in that is that so much there's a lot of pressure on teenagers to behave a certain way and I know that I had a lot of anger as a teenager, but I couldn't necessarily, I didn't have the guts to necessarily rebel against it. And so what I did was sit on a lot of anger. And that's kind of the background in the family that I come from. There wasn't, anger wasn't really an emotion that was permissible. You know, mm. that was something to be come inside. So how does it come out? In my case, as a person, it would come out in creatively, like writing poems or writing fiction. And then I started to think, how else could that come out? And it could come out in violence. It could come out in obsession. It could come out in... Uh, you know, this intense sort of attachment to someone that you feel like they get you when no one else does. And they're the person that you can mm. hold on to, to connect yourself to when the world seems to falling apart underneath your feet. Yeah. Cause I wanted his relationship with Emily to be that even when people critique it and not kid teenagers for having that kind of love doesn't make it that happens all the time. Yeah. You know, with yeah. kids. Let's talk about um, Emily and and Telsa actually, um, because yes. Uh, can I pause us for a second there? So, oh yeah. Okay, so you guys probably read the galley version of this book and not the hardcover. Oh shit, correct? are we quoting from a galley? They tell us not to do that on the back. <laughs> I'm sorry, guys, but some authors are really dumb and they change a major character's name after the galley has come out. Uh, so I'm sorry. This is just a silly story. I stupidly, because now seeing that the, her name is being mentioned as Telsa in the reviews, Telsa is the name of a friend of mine's wife. And I dawned on me too late, who has nothing to do with the character in the book. It's literally like her name in knowing that I had an Indian American character. This was an Indian American friend of mine whose name I just loved because there's this terrific sort of ripping sound to the TH of Telsa. And it's just like, okay, I'll use her name. But I forgot to ask her. And I realized, what if she read that in print and thought, oh, wait, this character is based on me? And it has nothing to do with her. I mean, she's a cardiologist, you know, who's like, <laughs> has nothing to do with a freelance journalist in New York City. So the point is, I changed the name. I changed it probably too late. The character's name is Leela. Leela. Yeah. Leela. Sorry, guys. No, it's okay. I have a confession. I read the finished copy. So only me. Yeah. Cool. Sorry. No, cool. I wanted to air that, though. Oh, wait a second. So I didn't have to do that whole confession. <laughs> no, you did, because I didn't get it. We just could have um, thought you were confused. Yeah, <laughs> we could have so both been like... Who is this character? <laughs> oh, interesting. Huh. Let's just talk about Leela. <laughs> <laughs> um, these are... I mean, like like you were saying, uh, Leela is an Indian-American character. Yeah. Um, she also is having a hard time with like trying to get her career started and then emily she's a 16 year old girl who um i mean i don't think it's much of a spoiler because it's sort of talked about but she has her pictures of her online right uh you know in in uh in, in naked it, <laughs> yes in a, 
in intimate terms, yeah. intimate photos of her, and, and like these appear online during the plot of this book, and they're close third. Like you really get close with them, and you and you know, uh, you know from their perspective, and they're also like it's all about representation and yep. uh, and uh, being online and identity, and um, I guess this is like really hard stuff to um, to get right and to get into. Like, were you scared of 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 getting it wrong? <laughs> yeah, I was scared of getting it wrong. And I worked really hard to hopefully get it right. I think in the end, I am satisfied with what I did. Like, yeah, I got it right for me. There may be people who say that is not my experience in terms of whether or not I got it the way that it is sort of perfect. But it is, I think, a, a very plausible scenario for both of them. For, to take them one by one, the Leela character for the readers, uh, or the readers, the listeners. They are readers, though. Yeah, for the reading Hopefully. listeners. Yeah. For the listening readers. If you listen to this show and, and don't, don't read, read books, please reach out to us. Yeah, and tell us why you listen, because that's great. <laughs> Can I uh, drop an anecdote really quickly while I think of other stuff to say that will sound pithy and wise? Sure. The anecdote is that uh, Evelyn Waugh, is that yeah. am I pronouncing that correctly? Evelyn Waugh once said in an interview that you can mention anyone in a book. Literally, you can take you know anyone and write about them in a novel or in a piece of nonfiction, as long as the first thing you say about them is that they are sexually attractive. <laughs> Once you do that, that person will have no problem with anything else. You can say that they're, you know, a... I believe that. I don't know, mean person who doesn't like mustard. Doesn't matter, as long as someone wants to boink them, you know. <laughs> so, to, the, to your question, uh, in terms of the Leela character, who is an aspiring journalist, writer, living in New York City right now, doing you know gr- drudge work on the internet all i can say is that was me yeah and uh, that was something that i wanted to explore and i also know a number of young women both through the site the morning news and students of mine and just friends of mine who have just come up through sort of freelance internet journalism as a way to sort of get into this wordy world right last night i was in union square i went to barnes and noble I used to go to that Barnes and Noble when I was 19, when I was 20, when I was 21. I'd sit in that coffee shop. I would grab a couple magazines that I'm not going to pay for. You know, I would buy a chocolate chip cookie or a coffee. And I would look at the magazines or I'd look at the book that I grabbed. And I've got my stupid power book, which weighs 18 pounds. And it's the size <laughs> of a small dog who's been flattened. And I would want so badly to be in those magazines to be in those books and there are so many people like that right now in new york city in austin in san francisco in topeka like wherever they are there are so many people because it's such a wonderful thing to do Mm -hmm. right writing reading we all love this Mm -hmm. um and i just wanted it so bad and so i wanted i've forever wanted a character who was that who wasn't Mm -hmm. i don't care about having a writer character not having a writer character some people some writers are like fuck a writer character some writers are like oh that's all i know so i have a writer character i wanted not the writer character i wanted like that super hungry person who makes really bad mistakes and drinks too much and has credit card debt and is struggling through all of that because they have this one experience that says reading writing is me you know, mm-hmm. more than anything that is yeah. me, that's me. And I'm just going to go after it. And it will turn out to be something. Who knows what? Maybe I will, you know, get a piece in the New York Times. Or maybe I will write dog grooming articles, which I did. Uh, you know, maybe I'll be a fucking real estate agent. I don't know. But, like, that yearning was something I just wanted to find in a character. And so that's where Leela came from. But then but then having her be Indian American as yeah. well, like, that, that is a, another huge par- portion of that. Yep. Um, and that, for me, was a lot about... Uh, one, 
I didn't want that character, if we take this very superficially, I didn't want the character to look like me. Uh, I've got enough white dudes roaming around in my novels. Now, on a superficial level, I say that because it is silly. Uh, what's not silly about it, I think, is that Leela, the character, is struggling a little bit in terms of her family and her background and where she comes from, which is this tiny town in New Hampshire, which she ends up going back to for financial reasons, where she does not want to see her parents. This is someone who's trying to get away from home and she's trying to get away from things yeah. that would tie her down. And that mm -hmm. can be ethnic identity, that can be family, but not everyone embraces where they come from. And I'm that too, right? And that's something I wanted to explore, but I just wanted to explore it in a way where I would be challenged to get outside of my own experience and put myself into someone else's. Mm -hmm. Now, what credibility do I have to do that beyond imagination and my own personal experiences? I can claim none, but that's not to say, I, I think that if I were to be hampered by that, that would be also a silly hampering. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to sort of go for it. Awesome. Fail or not. Yeah. Yeah. The way that you talk about journalism and the internet and the way that all of these things come together, we were talking about this before we got on air. Yeah. You deal with the modern world. And you and you deal with it in a way that it is a fait accompli. Things move so fast yep. that you don't have time to be like, there. there is no time to consider anymore. Right. And I'm wondering, seeing that this novel took seven years, it took a while to write, how the pace of current events, not necessarily current current events, but just like the way that the world moves now, mm -hmm. how that affected the novel. It's a great question and the long dramatic <laughs> silence is because i'm having to think for once and not just riff uh shoot my reading habits the reason let me start over the reason i subscribe to the economist is because <laughs> every sunday morning i get to lie in bed and i my wife and i don't have children that it was a deliberate decision we have nieces and nephews that we love the hell out of and we fly to babysit i mean we are just over the moon but we don't have children of our own and one of the benefits of not having children of your own is sleeping in on a Sunday with coffee <laughs> and reading The Economist. And the nice thing about that is it takes the week at a glance. It's a distillation of the news rather than getting roped up into it. That's how I need to operate in the world. Mm -hmm. I'm not good at Twitter. I'm not good at surprises. You know, I have routines and I stick by them. I'm like a little turtle, right? And it's scary, the news cycle, where things aren't considered, where things aren't measured, where the president is uh, a liar right and the president is a combustible temper-driven egomaniac and we have this idea now that that's okay i mean we can all go into this subject ad nauseum yeah and we won't go there how did it affect the book i don't know but what i do know is that i am not good at writing novels fast and i mm. think that my novels are better when I take my time and live with the characters longer because I'm the kind of person who revises the hell out of something. I wrote this book probably 20 times, you know, mm -hmm. and it's like they're just drafts and drafts and drafts and drafts because it's on the surface level. I need to hone the sentence till it sounds right in my head. But on the character level, I'll finish a draft. I'll share it with my wife. I'll share it with my editor, my agent. And they'll come back and be like that. I just don't know where that's going. And I have to have that hard calculation that doesn't feel good of being like, well, what was I trying to achieve? Yeah. And if I didn't do it, because you can't edit a novel, you can write a novel with all the spontaneous uh, 
dreamlike magic concentration where you've got your eyes closed and you're feeling your way through this imaginary world. Uh, but you can't edit a novel like that. To edit a novel, you're a, you know, a homicidal maniac. Like you're like slaying <laughs> things left and right because it's not good enough, right? right. I mean, that's the only way to revise. So it, I'm just a slow worker. And I prefer things like that a little bit slow. There are certain things I prefer fast. I was really into drum and bass when I was 22. Nice. You know, I enjoy a good quick beer followed by a second one. But <laughs> novel writing, take it easy. Same with the news. News. Yeah. Take her easy. Mm. To pivot a little bit, as you mentioned earlier, uh, one of the co-founders of the Morning News which is how we're here, the Tournament of Books. It's I know, true. it's so exciting that this is all coming together in yeah. this moment. And uh, John Warner, commentator extraordinaire, and Biblioracle, uh, has never steered me wrong, wrong, has never steered me wrong with a recommendation. <laughs> well pronounced. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he sent me my first Graham Greene, yeah. which was The Quiet American. Oh, great. Novel. And I read it, and I was just like, shit, this is great. And then once on a whim, I just picked up the end of the affair. And oh. again, I was like, fuck, this guy's amazing. You said, I want to read Brighton Rock. And I was like, great, another chance to read Graham Greene. And again, I had the same thing of just like, this dude is maybe like the best fucking writer of all time. He's so good. It's quite possible. He's, I can't say enough about Graham Greene. There are certainly bad things you can say about Graham Greene, both for his writing and for his personal life. But sure. you can certainly say a lot of good stuff. And I will tell you, I discovered him through my wife. Um, the night that my wife and I met, we were at a party in the Lower East Side on a rooftop, a friend's apartment, mutual friend. She had told each of us ahead of time, oh, there's this person I want you to meet. They're a writer. And both of us said, Fuck. <laughs> the last person you want to meet is a writer in New York. It's awful. But we clicked immediately. And one of the things my wife asked me, she's like, what are your top five books? And I was like, whoa, okay, let's play this game. And in her top five was The End of the Affair by Graham Greene. I had never mm. read a single book by Graham Greene. I read The End of the Affair you know, within that week or something. And I, I'm now a completist about Graham Greene. I've read everything. The only thing I haven't read are these massive uh, biographies that have been coming out that where yeah. this one writer tracked his entire life by actually going in his footsteps and going everywhere that Graham Greene went. Uh, the End of the Affair, I'm just going to throw down, and say is for a while was my favorite novel. I mean, it really did do so many things for me that are what either I aspire to as a writer, but also what I want as a reader are in that book. I've now, I've read it probably five or six times. The last time I read it, I was like, I can't read this again. Hmm. And there's something about getting older. I'm 40 Getting older, it's now too upsetting to read that book. The pain that those two characters go through, huh. multiple characters go through, but the primary, the protagonist, the man and the woman, uh, what they go through is now so upsetting to me that I'm, I don't want to read it. I actually find it un, not uncomfortable. It is a lasting, uh, like, sort of just bummer to go yeah. through that book. Not like, the book is like, not a downer. It's like a wound. I mean, it is a beautiful book <laughs> yeah. and it's like, throw yourself into it. But what they have to put up with, I mean, the disappointment is just so intense. Whew. Okay, so that's over with. Let's talk about this Bright, book that I recommended yeah, to you guys. Yeah, About Rock. Pinky, the gangster. Yeah, so, the teenage sociopathic gangster. Oh, Played by Killian Murphy in my mind. <laughs> you know, uh, I had never thought of that, but that is a good casting. The whole time I was just like, I know you. <laughs> yeah. uh, did you know they did a recent adaptation of this with Helen Mirren playing Ida? No kidding. And oh, I shit. Really you like should explain for the listeners who yeah. Ida is and how she foils Pinky's plot, so, as it were. Uh, Ida sort of just like uh, kind of gets um, incidentally caught up in this in this uh, plot of 
of what's going on and she just she's just a good person like yes. she stands as like the a force of good not an easy life ida's life but mm-hmm. a good person nonetheless so she has sort of seen the salt of time you know and it's wearing a little bit but she's still like this force of and we also should say i mean that we're on coastal england resort town seedy yeah uh there's like petty crime is and that why you candy brought it to us is that like is the, exactly the, the, the seaside town I, so this is entirely honestly 100% the inspiration for the setting of the book I wanted to do Brighton Rock in coastal New Hampshire because I invented a town for the novel called Claymore that place doesn't exist there is no coastal town in New Hampshire that in like in oh, my book son of a uh-oh, <laughs> he that has a, like, <laughs> just coastal mountain setting at the same time fuck yeah in my it's alright man it's alright you got me though did I, <laughs> I you did in a way that like you convinced me yeah, you, yeah. that a thing that I like knew. But, but didn't... you don't know is I have an email thing of uh, Drew being like, when are we going to claim more? <laughs> I'm just like, well, right now I want the listeners to know that I'm giving you a very sympathetic face. <laughs> and when I walk out the door of your studio, I will be fist pumping. Yeah, very good. Yeah. I actually came across this novel a long time ago because it was... Um, the, I, you guys probably don't know the novel, or maybe you do. Uh, King Dork by I Frank Portman. It. Yeah, um, it's a uh, Frank Portman. He's a he was the lead singer of a band that I'm forgetting the name of, but it was sort of exciting that he decided to write a YA novel, which is what King Dork is. And um, this kid who's trying to whose dad is absent. I can't remember if he's dead or just absent, um, but he left behind ten of his favorite novels. And one of them is Brighton Rock. Oh, no kidding. Mm. Um, and after I, after I read King Dork, which I loved, I went and read those 10 books as well because it was a fantastic list of good books. Um, and this was on there and it was my favorite of the mm. 10. Um, but it's a pincer movement of a novel. Like the entire time, you're just like, there's two things that are going to come together. Yeah. You're just like watching as like the left arm and the right arm and you're just waiting for them to just like snap shut. Yep. And it's, it's amazing from that perspective because it's completely like, it, it, and it's truly just good versus evil i mean like pinky is complete evil ida is complete good yeah and you're just waiting for them to have a final climactic showdown right and pinky you know for people who haven't read the book is sort of this teenage gangster very vain self-aware but not in a way that would make him become more of a moral person and yet he has these moments that he can't escape as a teenager they go to the movies right after he's just gotten married to this teenage girl and there's this heartbreaking moment where the girl wants him to go into this little booth and record a message on a on an oh. LP on a gramophone, mm-hmm. and they don't own a record player. She'll never know what's on that record. And he goes into the recording booth and basically tells her to fuck off. I mean, he calls her a bitch on the record. I mean, it's, he's a horrible person, right. right? Yeah. And then he goes to a movie with her, and he can't help but break down crying. And it's like a romantic picture. It's a love story. You know, you can I don't know who's in that picture, but he can't take it, right? So he's. I think when you run into characters that aren't evil, but are as close as a human can get, it is so much more menacing. Like the, the, the killer who cries at the movie is a scarier killer to me than, totally. you know, some freaking Stieg Larsson, you know, maniac with the right car. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I say that because it just, it seems like sometimes authors can't help but like give the bad guy all the right accessories yeah. as if like, like, it's like a spread in it's GQ. The James Bond you know, like, oh yes. Well, he has the right car. He's yeah. That bad. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's, that's one of the remarkable things about this book though. And, um, is that it's just, 
it's so taut and it's very it's short i mean it's quick it's yeah. it's a true and it was um it's one of these books that uh carried the you know how a lot of books when they come out now they have a novel underneath his had mm-hmm. an entertainment yeah mm-hmm. and not for long so this is one of my favorite things about graham green he actually would change that policy later in life but for a while he would distinguish his more s- serious literary fiction basically also the sort of the Catholic novels versus things that he sort of wrote that he considered an entertainment. So a man in Havana travels with my aunt. Yeah. Uh, these books that were sort of, I don't know, a little bit more fun and light. And uh, at the same time, the reason he stopped doing it, I don't know the reason that he stopped doing it, but he did stop doing it. And I think it's because publicly, at least I like to imagine people recognize the wonderfulness of those novels and mm-hmm. they were you know, end of the affair may not be one of the great Catholic searching priest novels set in mexico but it is goddamn one of his most moving and persuasive right pieces of work well and and pinky is catholic and it's like yeah this blends the two it blends the like thriller-esque excitement and then especially in the back half you really get the classical graham green like jed bartlett quoting in the church graham green right of good versus evil in a very capital C Catholic sense. Yeah. Mm. And let's not forget, like at the time writing, let's not forget that sounds so pompous, but the <laughs> point is at the time religion, which has faded so significantly now was a big freaking deal. Yeah. And the idea that you could go to heaven or hell, that there is manifest good and evil, that this is that novels are about something longer mm-hmm. for the human soul than just identity because right now what so many novels are about are identity so much of my book right here is about identity how do people figure out who they are what they are how do they communicate themselves how do they change over time obviously these are interesting and important things for the human experience but the idea that there's something bigger than that i think was what green was trying to work through because he had to work through it himself right here is a guy self-identified as catholic one of the worst catholics worst catholics to walk the earth you know yeah, like right. Hello, prostitute. I am your, you know, saint this evening. That's a horrible quote. I should never have said that. They stricken that off the record. Secretly keep it. Uh, He was friends with um, one of my favorite authors, Patricia Highsmith. Um, Ooh, yeah. uh, And they, they... they have, um, I don't know what these are called, the author signing copies that they signed to each other, but apparently they had a, a, even in their um, dedications to each other, they had a fun uh, interaction with, the, with one another. And uh, I, I think that they totally make sense as friends because they, right. they're all about like, oh, yeah. the tension and like, the darkness of the that human, sense human of spirit. That menace that just sort of accumulates over a Tom Ripley novel. I mean, people who haven't read the Tom Ripley novels, I can't <laughs> recommend them highly enough. And oh. it's just, it's often, you know, it reads almost like a country house farce, you know, like you just think like, oh, it's a novel of manners. It is a young man who is very polite and interested in fashion and the finer stationaries. And then you find out that the motherfucker is killing people left and right just because he has to maintain his equestrian interests, you know, and the income that needs to support them. No, and there's so much of like his wife that he has in the later novels of just like she's in another room and he's like darling and they have yeah. like a, a conversation but like there's some guy like trussed up in the yeah in the Those corner novels will give you nightmares they will and uh, yeah but but graham green is very similar in, in that you way you texted me and you said this feels very high smithy and i think i was a total dick and i was like i think it's the other way around my friend <laughs> <laughs> but then i like went and did uh, i did the research and i was like what what is the relationship between these two and i found some of those letters between them and it all totally makes sense that like they would be buds yeah 
one of the things that people would knock Green for was that there's just no style to it. That it is just a you start at the beginning, you get to the end, and all along the way, it could be someone else writing it. Were it not for this sort of obvious greenness about it, but it's not. You know, the knock against a Martin Amos novel is that you can you know his dad said this apparently. Yeah, uh, is that the first sentence you know it's a Martin Amos novel. You know, it just has that. I mean, Zadie Smith, his first line, Tony Morrison, people just like, I know. <laughs> I mean, I should be so lucky. Right. You know, we should all be so lucky that yeah. what you do, people are like, yep. That guy is doing himself, you know. Yeah. Perfectly. God, I love the idea that his dad said that about him. No, I, I will throw down and say, and I do blame the cocktails, that might be anecdotal. Apocryphal? That might be just be something I threw, but I think Martin Amos' dad, Kingsley Amos, said that. It wouldn't oh. surprise me. Being the stories novel- that I've heard about both of them individually and together. Yep. Can you imagine Makes being like the, a Doctoro or an Amos, like you're just like, or, or Hill and King and King? <laughs> uh, um and just like the the son of of a popular of novelist lucky jim yeah, yeah trying yeah. to do that <sighs> tough dang yeah <laughs> that's one of those that's one of those shadows that uh it's going to be very hard to find your find your light in uh, i will say there is a tradition in my family of uh writing poetry for occasions so my grandfather wrote occasional poetry that is literally when someone's having like an anniversary a birthday he would write a poem about it being a hyper educated too smart for his own good kind of guy he would mostly just do it with gigantic words and it would always be about someone's ass or their <laughs> you know breasts or like the guys and he was kind of a jerk so they would bring up that at their birthday party uh for my parents wedding he wrote them a sonnet in greek and on the flip side of the paper is the exact same sonnet still rhyming in latin (laughs) (laughs) a little too much wow yeah hey if if i could do that i think i would too so if i see you guys at a wedding it might be embarrassing i might be like grabbing a microphone and (laughs) and insulting people intelligently So thank you for bringing Brighton Rock, though. I, My pleasure. It was such such a great book to revisit. Yeah, I really love this thing of just like somebody randomly being like, "Read Graham Greene now," Thanks and sure. I'm always okay. Yeah, that's, <laughs> I will, I will forever. Yeah. Um, let's talk about recommendations. Let's recommend a book. Do you want to start? I don't. I okay. want you to start, Drew. Um, I finished it on my way over here. We were talking about it briefly offline. Lincoln and the Bardo, George Saunders. Wonderful book. It, oh, it's so good. It lives up to the hype. It is like a great experimental novel. Yes. Um, I'm still, this the last couple of hours, I have been thinking of like, how do I feel about the ending and the things that it says about Lincoln? And also... Like the other day, I was trying to take a photo. I've been doing a thing this year of taking a photo of every book that I read because I've been trying to do like a little art project. Yeah. Because you got to do something. Mm-hmm. And you have uh, to do something. I was True. in a I was in the St. Mark's on the Bowery churchyard, and I was about to put the book on a tombstone, and my, my girlfriend was like, "Don't do that." And I was like, "You know, I think." Saunders and the ghosts that <laughs> Saunders write would be fine with me putting this book on this tombstone. They'd be down with it. And she was like, those aren't real ghosts. <laughs> and so I've just been thinking a lot about like the reality of ghosts and the way that he presents them, which is 
unlike anything I've ever seen before. Yes. I was so knocked out by that book. And when my wife and I met, we were long distance dating for about six months. She was living in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. I was living in New York City. And we, this is going to be pretty dorky. <laughs> Ready yourself. But we would read to each other over the phone. And we read at one point George Saunders' children's book. I don't know if you know that he did a children's oh, yeah, book. But uh, the very persistent gappers of Fripp. Is his children's book, and it is—I mean, it is wonderful. It's a terrific book, and I remember this was around the time of 9/11, and we went through 9/11 being in New York City, and I had emailed Saunders. Uh, I got his email from someone that knows him, and I told him that because we had gone back to that book after 9/11 when so much didn't make sense and things were weird and scary and awful and etc., um, and we had read it again to one another. I told Saunders like in an email, look, this book just meant a lot to us. It meant a lot to us when we met and we were falling in love and it means a lot to us right now in this weird, scary moment where you don't think that literature and books really like do anything when, you know, these horrible things are happening and yet for us, this is a real consolation in a way or something to sort of just believe in in a silly way but not in a silly way that's insignificant. And he wrote back the most charming response to that a day later from his sarahcayuse.edu email address sort of saying, thanks a lot, that's great to hear shit is weird you know it's i'm just it's a nice note and i was like man he's also a gentleman like That's what awesome. a oh. jerk to be able to write like that <laughs> and, and also nice. turn out to be a nice dude yeah uh but that book is just a knockout yeah i was i was so thrilled yeah yeah it's a it's so good um rosecrans well, do you yeah. want to recommend a book you know i've been reading isadora um, by Amelia Gray. She and I are doing a reading together in San Francisco in two days. We're both on book tour at the same time. Nice. Uh, and for Amelia, it's a, and I know her personally pretty well, but having read her books, it's a new direction for her. There is a poetry to it. There is a, it's a historical novel about the dancer Isadora Duncan in the days after the tragic death of her two children and how mm -hmm. she sort of deals or doesn't deal, frankly, with that grief. It's a tricky subject. There is not an adventure plot, you know, with a lot of jungles and buried treasure. Yeah. Uh, but Amelia, uh, Amelia, excuse me, has some pretty insightful and really interesting things to say about grief. And I think, like I was saying, like, yes, you can embrace it. And this is what it's like for someone to die who's important in your life. And the idea that it's your children is so much worse. But it's also, how do you run from grief? How do you not grieve? How is grieving sometimes not what everyone expects you to do? Uh, mm -hmm. those, that's all there. So, yeah, I'm really enjoying that. Wow. Nice. Sounds really good. I'm excited to read that book. I love I loved um Gutshot and uh and, and Threats, Threats is such a yeah. bizarre uh reading experience. And can I throw in too that if people enjoy the new Saunders book, which is so good, they might want to check out and this is gonna now full circle on Nicholson Baker. Nicholson Baker wrote a book that a lot of people didn't pay attention to, which was a a history of World War Two that only focuses on the pacifism movement and similar to huh. Saunders. It's like just very short little sections page by page. And it's just about the event. So it's, you know, pulling nonfiction out of the mm. air and throwing it down the page of what were the pacifists doing the entire war. And it's, I know that smoke is in the title. I'm blanking on the rest of the title, but it's a great book and you, no one saw that one coming. And yeah. it is, you know, every book of his is different every time, but that one is unique. Wow. Cool. Yeah. That's, that sounds really good. And if you notice that I was over here like typing on my phone, which I don't have a good internet connection, so I wasn't able to get it. I was looking for the title. <laughs> well, well, we'll put it on the website. Actually, that's a good point to just say. So many damn books.com on our episode page. We actually list every book that we all ever mentioned. Um, I sit here trying yeah. frantically to get them all down. 
uh, and you can and you can look at a specific show and see all the stuff that we mention, as well as re- recipe cards and everything. So many books.com is a cool place to go. Some people um, complain in our reviews yeah, that like, we don't mention. Um, they're like, oh, but I didn't get that book title, and you can on the on website, website, people. All right, close us out. Bring us home, Christopher. Okay, I'm going to recommend something so different. <laughs> um, it's actually a middle reader series um, that I highly recommend to anybody. It's about this crazy family. Um, the first one in the series is called Safi's Angel by Hilary McKay. And uh, and they they follow the family, and, and each one um, you get multiple viewpoints of the family members like there's a bunch of uh, brothers and sisters and they're all artists in some way um and they're the they're they're all related to their mother who is a muralist uh, professionally and uh, her their their dad lives in london but they live outside and it's just like delightful like it's one of these things where you will um you'll read the first one and then you'll just want to always to be with this family get that drug going again yeah you'll just always want another one and another one there i think there's six um, cool and uh it, it's incredible summer reading it's incredible just reading you can read it to anybody read it with anybody it's one of these just fantastic reading experiences sounds that, like rosé you know hey, there's no wrong the, time for this book yeah exactly with ice if you're cheap like me <laughs> <laughs> so i recommend i recommend starting with safi's angel and it's just like the best summer family to get to know um, and you'll you'll just tear through all of them. Rate us on uh, iTunes. Mm-hmm. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook at so many damn books. Always. And uh, if you've got a spare twelve bucks a year floating around or more, throw them our way. Yeah. Patreon.com/smdb. Just one dollar a month pays for hosting for a month. Yep. Yeah. Um, if you do that. So uh, take it costs about fifteen bucks to to host our show for a month, and uh, it'd be that's what your dollar a month goes to. Don't worry about math; we're readers. Yeah, and I'll tell you that hosting, as in like you had me here and you made me a tequila <laughs> cocktail, that's not cheap because I've had three of these and there was a good time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad. Yeah, this is a this is I, this is a triumph of a cocktail. You guys should really make this at home. I know none of you ever do, but. <laughs> um, Rosecrans, thanks for coming. Yeah, thanks guys, so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. It was a treat. We owe this to you. Yeah. So uh, longtime I, I, listeners will know we met in the comment section of the of the tournament of books, and we met in real life the night we also met you. Yeah. But yeah. Let's just be clear: there is no owing. You guys <laughs> met one another and have created something great out of nothing. There ain't no owing of that. It's cool that the tournament of books is part of the Genesis story. That's mm. about it. All right, we'll take that. Fair enough. Yeah. Well, I will yes. say, if I let me jump in on that for a second, the book recently got a very nice review from NPR, but the headline was something like, this is the beach read for people who like to stay indoors. Okay. Oh, <laughs> yeah, it's sort that. of like, it's, it's the beach book for people who are afraid of the light. Um, yeah. And I, at first, didn't know how to take that. Uh, <laughs> right now, I still don't know how to take that, yeah. but I'm going to embrace it. Yeah, you know? I mean, it... It's, it means that it's super readable at the very, you know. At the very and it least. is a good pitch right. because there are those people who are like, you know, I was looking for that. <laughs> so. <laughs>